When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Mortgage Lending Mastery. Get the knowledge you need from America's Mortgage Mentor with more than 35 years of experience and over $1 billion in lifetime fundings. You'll learn to advance your mortgage practice quickly and efficiently. Also, be sure to check out Jen's book, Launch, How to Take Your Business to New Heights. Available on Amazon. For a signed copy, contact Jen at jenduplessis.com. Now, here is Certified Mortgage Planner and CEO of Kinetic Spark Consulting, Jen Duplessis. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Stop Talking, Take Action, and Get Results with Jen Duplessis. I want to say thank you so much for taking time in your day to listen in to this podcast. And for those of you that are brand new, welcome to the show. I hope that you find several nuggets in today's episode and that you go back and listen to all the other ones that we've done over the last three and a half years. So without further ado, I want to introduce my guest today, Sam Knickerbocker. He is with Fuel Your Legacy. He's a financial advisor and that's his company. And we're going to have a chit chat about creating your legacy from a financial standpoint, but also from a mindset standpoint, because it's not all about the money that Sam focuses in on. So Sam, welcome to our show today. Thank you. Yeah. Excited to be here. Thank you. Good. So Sam and I had this great opportunity to meet each other at a retreat in um, outside of Salt Lake City in a small town called Heber, which I'd never heard of. And there was tons of snow, right? I mean, it was really, really snow. I can't remember when it was, January or February of this year. We had this great opportunity to spend three or four days together with other people really doing a lot of breakthroughs in our own personal lives so that we could be better in our business lives. So that's how we met. And that's why I wanted to bring him on the show and have him share his wisdom with us about what his passion is and what he is trying to do to improve his personal life and our personal lives, as well as our businesses as well. So Sam, would you take just a quick minute here to talk to us about you and where you're from and what you're doing and what your company is? And then I'll ask you lots of Great questions. Okay, yeah, for sure. Thank you again. My history, I'm going to give you a little bit of my childhood because this, I think, underpins why I do what I do. But essentially, I was raised the seventh of 11 children, very much poverty for American standards, right? Poverty. The house we moved into shortly after I was born, double story house, really old white vinyl siding around the bottom floor. And then the top floor was just open, low grade OSB wood. Um, the windows were broken in. When, when you walked into the house, you could actually see underneath the foundation where there was supposed to be a shower and a toilet and then a bathroom. You could see underneath the foundation. And so for the first few years, we actually just used the out, like a honey bucket outside of our house. It was just a very interesting experience growing up that way. And I have, I have pictures up until when I was five and six years old, and the house hadn't really changed that much. It was barely livable even at that point. And that's kind of how I was raised along with that, as in a lot of 
poverty mentality or, or households comes a lot of abuse and verbal abuse, physical abuse, and then just neglect, especially when you have 11 children. My mom is an angel in my opinion, but during that period of her life, the chemical imbalances in her just did not allow for her to actually be attentive or, or show and that she cared the way that she wanted to. Now talking to her, her perspective was very different than what was happening to me as a child. And as I was growing up through this, I never really felt cared about, loved, even recognized a lot of the time being the seventh child. Your older siblings tend to raise you. That's not to say I have, like, I know there's people with way worse lives than me. I listen to them tell their story. I'm like, wow, I had it so good. I, my life was so good. As I grew up, though, I wanted to figure out how could I maybe remove the abuse or remove the bad parts of my childhood from future generations. And so I went and studied psychology and figuring out why would my mom act this way? Why did I respond the way I responded? And how could we heal that relationship? I decided to go into neuropsychology. And what I found in the research was the one consistent thing that is not really talked about all the time, but it is very much a major correlator in the research is the socioeconomic status of households. And when I saw that, I thought, man, I could spend my whole life trying to repair psychologically something that's been broken, or I could spend the rest of my life really helping people understand the rules of money, how it works, how it impacts every decision we make in our life, the stress, the anxiety, the depression, the happiness, the joy, all of those things, how money impacts those. It's not a direct cause, but it definitely impacts it. If I'm able to teach that family, I'm able to wipe out a lot of the social issues of our time, whether it's, I mean, sexual abuse, domestic violence, malnutrition. I mean, there's so many things that when you get into the research, they're all correlated to, I didn't have enough money to make a change. And if we can resolve that for people, then they can't use that excuse anymore. So I would even ask any of your guests, Anytime somebody asks you, hey, why did you do it that way? Why didn't you do it differently? Or what are you holding back from taking the next step in? If it's a financial reason, let's help you understand the rules of money because if we can remove that, just think of what your life would be like if money was no longer a factor. That's my goal and that's why Fuel Your Legacy is so important to me is to help people understand that the fuel, your legacy is not money. The fuel to your legacy is money. That's what I believe. That's what I based my, the rest of my life on. I love it. That's great. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for sharing your story. And I know it was it's a very long story. It's not as short as you said it. And I was happy to be there as you shared that story more intimately with the rest of the group, you know, as we were all doing. And so when you look back on that and people that are listening in are saying, I want to change things too. I want to make sure that because I really think a lot of us have come from that situation because it seems like everybody's more wealthy these days than they used to be. <laughs> they just generally are. And I don't know if it's because maybe people aren't and they're just trying to keep up with the Joneses on social media or whatever the case may be, but it, it doesn't seem because I too came from very, very poor background and, and I mean really, really poor. And I just don't see that as much this, this, at this time. And it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Believe me, there are lots of people who are. Um, but the people that are listening to this podcast probably came from that, but aren't there now, right? And so they want to change everything going forward. I was going to say legacy, but I, I guess I will have to. But they want to change that, you know, that path and they want something better for their family and their kids. And I know my husband and I always wanted our children 
to make more money than us, be more successful than us, because that's what we're set out to do as parents is to learn from our past, our mistakes, our successes, and give that to our children so that they can be 10x to us or 3x to us. And you know, in my case, my son is already 5,000x to us. I mean, he's just a multi, 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 multi-millionaire already at the age of 32. And I see how that has changed and will change his children, right? His children will have a completely different outlook. And I'm really excited and surprised that he uh, still penny pinches. I mean, to the, he drives us nuts because he penny pinches so much. But I love that he's teaching his kids at it too. So that leads up to the question I have with you, which is how do you approach this thought process of success, of achievement, and of managing money so that it becomes, and where does someone start in this process of saying, that's it, I've had enough, I don't want money to be the thing that drives all of my decisions in all areas of my life? I think that's the age old question, right? And for me, because I approach the whole thing, so most financial advisors or financial planners or people who are in the financial space, they're going to approach the whole conversation from a specific financial conversation, numbers conversation. And, and I'm going I'm to draw a contrast here, and you may not like it because I know you love Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey approaches the whole conversation from a numbers perspective, which there's nothing wrong, and I'm not going to argue numbers for it. When you take the whole thing, and this is what the beauty of having other people enter the industry, when you take the whole process and you flip it on its head and say, okay, I'm going to approach it from a purely psychological habit-forming perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't care what the numbers turn out like. I'm talking about habits that are being formed. In that community, if you go on to Debt Free Community and like watch them on Instagram, what you have is a bunch of people who are being programmed to live in fear and scarcity. They're being programmed to penny pinch. They're being programmed to not feel like they have enough. And, and what's amazing about these people is they somehow, in a matter of a year, they're making maybe $60,000, $70,000 a year, and they will be able to pay off tens of thousands, sometimes thousand dollars worth of debt in less than a year. That by any standard is absolutely incredible. Yeah. However, when they get out of debt, they left there and like, my husband wanted to go buy a brand new pair of sneakers sneakers because now we have the money, but I just don't feel right about spending $25. And you're just like, oh my gosh, like how are you ever? The problem is you built an identity of debt. You built an identity of being debt free rather than being financially successful and independent. And, That's a good point. I love and, that. And the identity is what's important for me. Mm-hmm. And so although I think there's, you can be successful in both ways, for me, the identity of which you're creating is more valuable in the long run than being debt-free. Because I don't care if I'm in debt. If I have $4 million and I'm in debt $2 million, I don't care about being in debt $2 million and paying interest on $2 million Because I know that that's an investment that's working for me. What I care about is not being able to pay my debts. And so yeah. being debt-free most successful people, they're not super interested in that. Like, yeah, it's, it's about leveraging, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's about and leveraging. And so helping a client understand the, the mentality and the identity that's being created, I think has to be the first step in any journey. And so I go through, a, most of my clients, they, they say it's grueling. For me, it's exciting. But I go through and I help my clients, they track every penny, right? The same type of process. Where is every penny going? Because without clarity of where you actually are, 
you can't actually start making adjustments in your life. You start making these adjustments and it's, you have no idea what the problem is. It's like if your car oil ran out and you're like, well, I think that it stopped because the tires are flat. And so you fill up the tires. Like that doesn't change the fact that there's no oil in the car or there's no gas or all these other issues. A, a proper diagnostic requires going down and finding exactly what is and objectively looking at it without emotion. And this is the problem I see with a lot of people who come from poverty and go to success. And I went through it myself as well. Okay. But the way I explain this is like a silo. So I work with a lot of divorced individuals, people who have gone through their life. They had a certain level of success and then they got divorced. This can happen to a mom who's still married, but has sacrificed her life, her desires, her intentions, herself to her family. They lose their identity. And then when they try to regain their identity, they build a financial successful silo, okay, like a grain silo, and they paint it really nice. And so on the outside, they look super successful. They built this silo, but on the inside, they're completely empty. They have no fulfillment. They're lost. And they're using this financial silo as a status symbol, but inside they aren't, they still feel like the person in poverty. They're still treating themselves like the person in poverty. Although they built this beautiful silo, they don't feel like they're worth storing anything in it or using it. And it's sad to me because that's the, like success, it, it comes down to, is the silo your legacy or is the silo there to store your legacy, to fuel your legacy? And what's the purpose of the financial success? And I don't care if you're financially successful. If you're happy at a certain level of life without money, happiness is what we're going for. And people say, well, you should learn to be happy without money. And I completely agree, but I think Ed Milet says it, the, at least most often, I'm sure a lot of people say it, but, but happy rich and happy poor, they're just two types of happy and happy rich is better. Like you can be happy both ways and I agree, but denying that having wealth gives you opportunities for things that no wealth get, doesn't give you. I mean, that's just asinine. I mean, like you got to recognize you have more opportunity, which means you have more wants that can be fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. More That's, fulfillment, which is something that I talk about is what fulfills you. If you can't be fulfilled with things that, and I'm not saying that everything needs to be monetary. It's what fulfills me is sitting and having a cup of tea on my porch and listening to the birds sing every single morning. I absolutely, absolutely love doing that. But what also fulfills me is traveling and mm -hmm. that requires money. So some of the fulfillment will be non-monetized and some of it will. So I want to ask you this question because this is something that I've seen with, you come from a big family and so do I, and I'm one of 37 first cousins. Now, I've seen this too where, and in business as well, where people that come from, and I don't know if I want to say it's poverty, but just not having like, we can't afford that, honey. We can't get that because we can't afford it. You know, hearing that as a child, when they have success, and this will get into some, I think some biblical pieces too, which we want to be careful of, but when we have success and people that have come from that place, they almost feel like they're not worthy of success and you touched on it, but they're almost not worthy of success. And so what they do is they self-sabotage and so they can never really get to success because every time that they have a dollar, they self-sabotage. It's not conscious. It's a subconscious reaction to spending that money. And so I've, I've seen people, especially the industry I was in for many years, mortgage lending, where they would make 
a lot of money. Mortgage lenders make a lot of money. They make five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year, right? The, the top producers make over a million, make all this money. And then when there's a shift in the market, they lose everything. I mean, they have the best. I mean, I've seen people wearing $10,000 watches, which I think is silly, but whatever. They wear a $10,000 watch. If that fulfills them and they have the money to do it, great. But if you have a $10,000 watch and you have three or four second homes and you have a fancy car and all the flashy clothes and all this stuff, beautiful home, all that, you have all that and then you lose it all and then you have it again and then you lose it all. It makes me wonder where the self-sabotaging is in their past that makes them feel that they're not worthy of the stickiness of money. Does that make sense? And so, and I'm horrible with biblical quotes. I just know stories, right? But the key is if you can't manage $100, how can you possibly manage $10,000, right? Or $100,000. And so the key is getting back to the basics and saying, how do I manage $1? So can you talk a little bit about the psyche behind that particular type of person and why they have that problem? Because I imagine there's people that are thinking, it's like, I've made thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, but I have absolutely nothing to show for it. And yeah, absolutely. Happening. So I think there's a few, I almost think of this like a star or something where all equally planar, they're all kind of co-causal issues. But one is value of the individual. So like, how do they value themselves? And is there value that they're gaining being propped up by somebody else? Like is somebody else propping up their value? So I've had some clients where when they're working for somebody else, they're making millions of dollars because they've been given that value. Somebody else has externally placed that value on them. Because here's the thing, so I, I do a whole webinar on this. The difference of value exchange, let's just talk about value exchange for a second. Value exchange is essentially always going on. And there's two forms of value. There's non-monetary value, then there's monetary value. And you're always making this exchange. And if you can add enough non-monetary value to society, natural law reaction is that you get monetary value. And some people are like, well, what if the dollar crashes? What if this happens? I'm like, I'm not even a little bit concerned about any of that, because I know that whatever the monetary value is in society, I can get it because I am confident in my non-monetary value of addition to the society. So I don't care what happens. If we switch to the Euro or if we switch back to the gold and silver standard, whatever it is, whatever it is, it doesn't matter because I know I have value that people will pay me for. And that's where a lot of people, they don't understand that. And so what happens is they come from this background and then somebody else props up their value. One of the issues here is they never dealt with their issue of not having value. Mm-hmm. Somebody else just told them they have value. It feels good. You feel valued, right? This is why a lot of abused women or men will stay in an abusive relationship because they believe they have value in that relationship and they're willing to put up with so much heartache because they feel like they have a little bit of value there. Yeah, and, and you see this with employees. Employees will stay in an abusive business relationship. Business partners will stay in an abusive relationship because they're uncertain of their own value, their own ability to go and create that value outside of that relationship. They, it's the imposter syndrome to the T. Yeah. And so one of the first questions I ask if I'm dealing with that type of person, when was the first time like, that you can remember not feeling like you had value? Right? And that almost always takes somebody back to the two to four-year-old range in their life. And it's something completely non-related, but they based all of their emotional decisions off of this not feeling that feeling as though they have value. 
And then they've never addressed it and it's compounded. So a lot of times they don't even recognize what it is. They're like, how could that even possibly be related to my lack of ability to manage money? Another one is a lot of these people who've made a ton of money and they lose it. They are not tracking their money. All they know is they keep making more than they're spending. That's all they know. And they refuse to look at it. So there's another question. Okay, when was the first time in your childhood that you were scared to report, that you were scared like, or that you got in trouble for reporting something that was negative? Mm -hmm. You got a bad report card. Or what happened the first time you brought home a, a bad report card? What did your parents do to you, say to you? Like, what was that emotional experience? Because now you have this emotional response. When I ask you to report your financial statements and say exactly where you are, you have an aversion to knowing exactly where you are because it's painful. Yeah. And so, Ooh, yeah. So there's this emotional response that has to be rooted out and we have to be willing to objectively look at, at what is without any emotion. And then once we're there, then we can actually start working and making decisions and start making value judgments. Like maybe you like eating fast food. I think that's silly. You think it's silly to buy a $10,000 watch. I know one gentleman friend of mine, he bought $400,000 worth of, well, he's bought a lot more than that, but just in one month, $400,000 worth of racing cars. And he really values that. He doesn't value drive traveling. So he's kind of a homebody, but he spends all of his money on racing cars. I'm like, I would never, ever, ever spend that much on racing cars, but I would go travel the world multiple times. I would go start a charity, right? But it's all about what somebody values and there's no condemnation for what somebody values. Right. And no judgment, no judgment for what they value. Let me clarify that. So this is my, my words. Okay. If you like them, you can use them. If you don't, you can reject them. That's fine. But I think everybody has to make judgment when the light turns red or green, we have to make a judgment call and decide whether we're going to stop when we observe. So we at first observe other people around us and we see how they operate in their life. And then we have to make a judgment call about how we're going to operate in our life. The question is, are we putting an emotional condemnation behind that judgment? Are we now condemning them for living their life? Or are we just saying, well, judgment call here. I'm not going to live my life that way. I think judgment is an essential part of God. It's an essential part of natural law. It's an essential part of life. Condemnation is where you're overstepping your bounds. So I think judgment has to happen. Condemning people can't happen. Right. You know, one of the things that I learned a long time ago when someone does something like that, for example, so I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying, for example, I say, good for them. Good for you. (laughs) Not what I would do, but good for you. But you know, it's funny. I have one to comment on a couple of things. One is three things. I want to kind of share some stories because they come back to this very thing. My kids, our cars, my husband and I, our cars have, I think one car might have 158,000 miles and every other car has more than that. Every other car. I mean, not meaning every other, meaning every single car past that. One of our cars has, I believe, 320,000 miles on it. And people say to us all the time, like, why don't you buy new cars? And we never buy new cars, by the way. One of them was a new car, and that's the one that has 300,000 miles. Every one of these cars looks nice. It's getting older. There's no doubt about it. But my husband is a a race car driver. And so he can build a car from scratch. Well, no wonder it's lasted that long. And it's funny that you mentioned the person who spends money on, on cars, because it's certainly something my husband spends money on, on his race cars and show cars. He made the comment a couple of years ago about that. Another friend saying, why don't you just get a new car? Your cars are so old. And Brian said, because I'd rather spend my money on my race cars. That's where I get my joy. It's not what I'm driving day to day. It's what I'm driving 
to fulfill me and make me happy. Now, the sad thing about that is that it doesn't fulfill me. I would like to have the new car, right? I would like to have the new car. Anyway, so I wanted to share that story because I totally get that. I also totally get the whole fast food thing. I can't tell you how many loans I've done. For 30, I've done over a billion dollars worth of mortgage loans over my career before I transitioned to speaking. And the people that I would see their bank statements and just day in, and they didn't have enough money to come to closing. And day in and day out and day in and day out, they were going to McDonald's and McDonald's. Every time I was on the phone with them, they were at McDonald's. They were saying, can you hold on just a minute? What do you want? What do you want? We'll have a Mick this and a Mick that. And I mean, just Darren Hardy says is these little insignificant choices that you make in your life make major, major impacts. And I think you were at my workshop when I shared, you know, the, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Nobody gets bit by an elephant, but you get bit by mosquitoes. And it's these little itty bitty things that you do all day long and knowing where your money comes, where your money is spent that does that. And then the last one I wanted to say, and this will segue into my next question is this comment about report cards, you know, bring it back. And what did your parents do? And you associate this feeling. We never paid our kids for good grades ever, because I think that feeds this mentality that you're talking about. If you have good grades, you'll get X amount of dollars. And if you have bad grades, you're going to get a lower amount of dollars, right? It right there is showing you what you're worth. Because you're a C, you're only worth $3. Because you're an A, you're worth $20. And I think that that breeds that right in. I mean, and certainly I'm sure that you probably want to make a comment on that. But I want to ask you this question. So if someone's listening in and they're saying, okay, Maybe they do come from a scarcity and not an abundance approach. Maybe they have some animosity with money, (laughs) you know, or they're having some conflicts with the value of money over the value of themselves. What's maybe one step or what's a first step that someone could take, an activity that they could do, advice that you could give someone to help take that, just start this, start it out. So a great friend of mine, Travis Brady, he proposed this question. And I think pondering on this question, Maybe writing your thoughts about this question are maybe the first step, and then and I'll get to the second step. But the question is, just replace the word money in your life with value, okay? We have a knee-jerk re- inside, deep inside ourselves, inside of your soul, you know that you have value. The, the, issue, the issue becomes that so many people in our lives has told us that we don't have value, and we've created a structure of what is valuable in, in society and what's not valuable. But if you walk up to somebody and, and you just straight up say, you have no value, right? That their knee-jerk reaction is to defend themselves because they know deep inside themselves that's not true. Whether they, and it doesn't matter how many times they've been told that you have no value, they will always have a knee-jerk, a stinging emotional response to you have no value. So this is kind of like the reverse psychology or the counterintuitive. But when you start saying, I have no money for that, I can't afford that, basically what you're saying is, I don't have enough value for that. The exchange is, if you don't have the monetary, then you you should have the non-monetary. So if you start saying or recognizing, oh, me saying I don't have money for that is me saying I don't have enough value for that, Mm -hmm. then that's a little bit, you're like, oh, that doesn't ring true. Where is the disconnect? And so journaling about that disconnect between value and money in your life can really give you some incredible insights just about experiences from your childhood. When did you first feel that you didn't have value? And then the flip side to that is I get a sheet of paper. This is what I have my clients do. I get a sheet of paper and I write down all of these negative experiences where we were told we didn't have value. And then 
I have them go write down three questions. One, how do they feel about it, mm-hmm. about what was said? Like, and people are like, man, why, why am I focusing on all the negative? You're being clear about your feelings, okay? You're not focusing on it, but you've got to articulate what's inside of you. So write down, how do you feel about this person telling you that you have no value? Right. And then you have to ask yourself, what might also be true? You then have to look at the, the whole entire situation and journal about it from that person's perspective, the person who told you you have no value. Try and put yourself in their shoes. So that's step two. Step three is then to rewrite that story, that narrative from a, a perspective of power and control or... Well, it's just empowerment. Empowerment. Okay. So I'm going to share a story with you about probably one of the largest impactful things in my life that I did this with. And it really, this one experience pretty much shifted everything in my life. And I don't know what that one experience is going to be for, for each of you guys, but once you choose to do enough of them, because I did a lot of them, is just the one that sticks out and had the most impact. But when I was younger, my, we were all homeschooled. My parents, at the time, they literally believed that the school was run by the devil, the medical field was run by the devil, and that the only way to protect themselves was to board up the house. And we were all homeschooled. We studied only what they wanted us to see. And I have learning difficulty. I was dyslexic, and it took me really hard to learn my ABCs. And so when I was about six or seven years old, my mom sent all of the kids to school, and she did one-on-one sessions with me in her bedroom on learning these ABCs. Now, this, when I say that, you're like, oh, that's nice. Well, we'd sit on this, this bed, down comforter, and we'd go through these 42 phonics flashcards, and they're about uh, the size of a letter, and we'd go through these. And we'd be going in every time I'd mess up, she would get more and more upset. So a good analogy or visual for this, if you've watched the new Incredibles, Jack, Jack, right? So he's kind of normal and then he gets red into a monster. Then he's like flaming, right? Well, this is the best way to describe my mom. She would get more and more upset and she would be beat red screaming about how dumb I was and why I couldn't get this. And then the phone would ring, right? It'd be one of her friends or something and she would pick it up. And cool as day, it was like she went back to the normal little baby Jack-Jack. Hello, my name is Gail Knickerbocker. Is there, uh, can I help you? At that point, I'm just like praying that the person doesn't hang up and that there's this break of verbal abuse. And as soon as it goes down, she's like instantly back to this monster who's yelling at me. And as that would escalate, it would get to the point where if you screwed up, then she would get in the bathroom, right? So we'd go in the bathroom, grab your ankles, and she would start beating me. And if you scream too soon, then she would beat you more because you're being tough if you scream too or you're being weak and then if you wait too long anyways you know the gist like there's no perfect time to scream and then we get back up and we do our abcs that was the surrounding of me learning my abcs like if that's not traumatic i don't know what is that was traumatic for me well here's the deal when that's been affecting my need to be perfect it delayed me writing a book. It delayed me starting a podcast. It delayed me doing anything in my career. I didn't want to step out of the lines until I was absolutely sure that I could do it with the best degree of excellence. In college, I had straight A's, right? Because that was my, that was my identity was like, I cannot fail at this. I will slave away just to get a good grade because failure means abuse. Right. And even though phys- like as a grown adult, nobody's going to come and beat me and it's an illogical fear. Because it was rooted in me as a child, that was the case. So I was invited to redo this through some therapy. And I went through and I was like, okay, this is how I felt about my mom. Lots of not good words and 
a bigger vocabulary to explain how I thought, you know, it was just not great. Well, then I said, well, what also might true be true? And so this is where I started to gain perspective on my mom. And this is where the story really changed me. Like to think about my mom, the current state of belief in our house about what the public school system was, what these other things were. And then for my mom to make the choice to take all of her children and essentially, right, sacrifice all the other children to the devil, the public school system, to be willing to sacrifice all of her children just so that I could learn my ABCs. Mm-hmm. Like, once you look at it from that perspective, right. now, was it the proper manner uh, in which I would prefer to learn my ABCs? Absolutely not. Do I wish anybody ever would go through that? Absolutely not, right? No part of that do I think is great except for intention, and intention matters. And whether it's true or not, from her side of the field, doesn't even matter because now it's the story I tell myself and what power it gives me. But what did I learn from this then? What, who am I now because I went through this experience? One, the amount of love that I'm able to comprehend now is way more than I ever thought I could. My mom taught me extreme resilience. She could have just beat me and said, you're done, you're dumb as crap and just leave, right? But she never did. She said, hey, we're getting back up on the bed and we're gonna go again. We're gonna go again and we're gonna go again. And so now it's like in the world, once I shifted that story, now my story is there's no way that somebody can reject me. There's no way that somebody can beat me more than I've experienced in my past. I am bulletproof from a mentality perspective. The reason I'm bulletproof is because I just literally can look at everything from a place of love and gratitude for what is. Yeah. I may not always love it as far as like enjoy the process, but I'm always looking for, hey, what's the most positive thing that I can draw from this? And that's what I mean. When you go through this story, you've got to, hey, what, how do you feel about it? Like, be clear about how you feel about this person. Maybe even go share it with them after you're able to share the love part. Don't just go share the pain. Yeah. So there's the pain. It might also be true. Go and ask questions if you need to. Seek some outside perspective about what was going on and then rewrite your story. And that one story transformed pretty much my whole life when I understood, I gained understanding rather than just like, victimhood. Right. I love your story because you and my stories are very similar. Yours is more physical. Mine's more emotional, not emotional, but verbal, right? And you can read this in my book. And we've talked about this too. You can read it in my book because it was the first time I shared it. So I love that you have experienced it younger than me. You've gotten through it younger than me because it, it wasn't something that I was able to transform until I started talking about it. You call it journaling because I was writing about it, right? I was making it part of my book so that people could understand why I am the way I am and why I have this insatiable appetite for success and being perfect and all that good stuff, which now I'm, I've accepted that I won't be perfect. And I tend to use a lot of terminology like to myself is progression, not perfection. Just yeah. move it along. It doesn't have to be perfect. They don't have to be perfect in everything that I do. But it comes from an uncle telling me that, one, calling me Jenny who ain't got a penny, which is why I can't go by the name of Jenny because it does take me back and I don't, I don't like the name. <laughs> and I will turn into that Jack-Jack if someone calls me that. Just because it does. It, it's just so, it, it just takes me back to my childhood. Mm-hmm. And then telling me that I was going to be just like my father. I was going to be an alcoholic. I was going to smoke. I was not going to have anything. I wasn't going to have any money. I wasn't going to make anything of myself. And so he told me what my value was. And prior to that, and I was, I believe, somewhere around six or seven, maybe nine, maybe six or seven, 
he told me that. And until then, I was just a happy little girl, right? And I was just running around and well, yeah, we were poor, but I didn't know because I had all these cousins around me and just had fun and made mud pies with my little easy bake oven and that stuff. And then when he told me, it made me kind of stop in my tracks and say, oh, I guess I am. Gee, I didn't know that I wasn't valuable, that this is what was going to happen. And so it was something that I did just like you, you know, all through high school and college at perfection and had to move through that. And I'm coming out of it. I'm definitely out of it, but I wouldn't say I've recovered from it. I'm out of it. Definitely out of that big hole. I'm not standing yet. I'm not running yet. I'm still coming out of it. So I think it's wonderful that you're sharing this with anyone who's listening so that regardless of their age, where they are in their business, in their lives, they can come out of this and start moving forward. So Gosh, there's so much more that we can talk about, but we're running out of time because we keep sharing these long stories, which is really good because it's, it's just saying to rethink the way you think about money, rethink the way you think about yourself. And it's really up-leveling the value that you put on yourself. And you can't, and again, this goes back to the airplane. You have to put that mask on for yourself before you can help others. And I know that that's something that you're teaching your kids and how many do you have? Just two. Two is plenty, man. I don't know where I gave. I got four in there. Please don't add in any children right now. (laughs) I know, because I know this is really important for you to, you know, have your kids have something completely different than you had. And I know that people hope and dream for that, but I don't think people really take the action to make that happen. And I love that you've done that. And I think that that's absolutely wonderful. So let's just leave with, leave with this, but Uh, not leave with this, but tell us how we can connect with you. How can our listeners open the door with you and say, I want to continue to have this dialogue with Sam and continue to raise your hand and say, yeah, this is me. This is me. I need help. How can I reach out to you? Sure. So one of the best ways, if you want to just direct line me, I have a business line. You can text my text, Sam, just my name, S-A-M. It doesn't matter if you capitalize it or, or whatever it's called, lowercase. But text Sam to the phone number 385-263-7699. Then it'll kick back a little thing to let me know who you are. And then then we can start an open dialogue there. So there's that. You can go to my website, samnickerbacher.com. And on there, you can watch a few videos of clients who have said some things about me. Watch my story kind of in a dramatized form. Then there's an ebook. My ebook I wrote really for helping people understand why it's important to begin a legacy and what are the the underpins. So it's called Fuel Your Legacy, the Nine Pillars to Build a Meaningful Legacy. You can get access to my my ebook there. I do a webinar about once a month. It's just called the Legacy Blueprint webinar. It goes over the aspect of worthiness, like are we worthy for for success? Two, heal your relationship with debt because that's a very emotional thing. And you can talk about that like a, a relationship with a spouse and it's almost all applicable, but it's money. And then two is how to legacize your budget, how to create a budget from a psychological perspective, using habits that are already there to really make sure that your money is there. You had recommended a book to me called The Automatic Millionaire. A lot of those habits are there. So I think if people want to learn the concepts, Automatic Millionaire by David Bach, great book. And then last is value exchange. And I go into a little bit more depth about all those principles, help people just shift their mind. My goal is to help people get clarity. So the webinar is great. And then on my website, you can also see where I'm speaking. So if you're in the area where I'm speaking or you want to fly out to where I'm speaking, 
there's different speaking opportunities there that you can come watch me speak as well. That's great. Okay, so let me thank you for sharing that. And we'll have all the links, of course, in the show notes. And as soon as Sam gets those all to us. Yeah, I will get them to you. Yeah, so as you know, I'm an avid reader. What are you reading right now? That's a good question. So I go through and I read a book a week. I just finished Automatic Millionaire because I'm doing a book review on it. I'm going to restart Think and Grow Rich. Um, I try and read Think and Grow Rich about once a quarter, once every three months. And then I read How to Win Friends and Influence People once every other month. Now, I think the most impactful books in my life, I'll share those. And these are like the top three. Mm -hmm. One is The Anatomy of Peace by the Arbinger Institutes. The other is Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. Mm -hmm. I think the other one is The Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin. Yeah, yeah, I Um, I've read all but one of those that you've suggested. Yeah, The Four Tendencies is really good. It's something I just read not too long ago. Yeah, Um, that book really changed my life, coupled with The Anatomy of Peace. The Anatomy of Peace is really like a good story or dialogue on how to approach every situation from love and and treat people as people rather than objects, but that it doesn't really answer the question of how to explain to another how you like to be treated. And that's where I think The Four Tendencies gives a lot of insight into how to, what's a language pattern to communicate how I like to be talked to or communicated to. And that's where the coupling of those, I think is a magical point in being able to communicate effectively and have healthy relationships with even people you vehemently disagree with, which. Well, and it was useful for me in business too. It's not just the personal relationships, but also the business relationships as well. So that you know, and I call it the platinum rule. The golden rule is to do unto others is that you would have done unto you. But the platinum is to do unto others as they want you to do unto them, right? And to communicate the way that they want, not the way that you want to communicate. And that allows for the forging of great relationship. So that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that as well. I really appreciate it. And I, I think it's very fascinating. It's fascinating that we're talking with a financial advisor who's talking about the psyche of money rather than where are we going to put your money? Which stock do you want? Which brokerage do you want? Thinking about the 30-year plan and what life insurance policy do you want? We're talking about being able to come into that situation with the right mindset first. So you have to kind of fix them before they can come to you versus going to somebody else and they're just going to screw it all up. Mm -hmm. That's what makes you different. That's what makes you, yeah. I think just to add, clarity there. There's a lot of people who do things from the psychological perspective that I do and they're phenomenal. And I learned from them. Wayne Dyer, awesome on finance. Bob Proctor, phenomenal with identifying your value and how it relates to money. There's a lot of people who are going to educate, even to point Hill, he educates about the essence of money and all of the things about that. And then there's people on the other side who talk about all the numbers, Tony Robbins, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, and they talk about all the numbers. But in my opinion, the power and coupling the two, helping somebody get their mind straight who can actually assist you in actually taking the tactical application and is on the same page, that's important. Yeah. Both of them have their own benefits on either side of the aisle, but the coupling of the aisle between the, what some people would call woo-woo things, like the all energy and the actual practical physicality of money, that's important to have somebody who understands both worlds and can operate in both, not just one or the other. I love that. Yeah, I love that. I, I think it's very, very powerful. So listen, if you're listening, you've got to get in touch with Sam. Attend one of his webinars, reach out to him, have him have, let him have a conversation with you so you can start moving 
filling your silo. Let's call it that. We're going to start filling your silo, right? And make sure that it is something that leaves a legacy for everybody. So Sam, again, thank you so much for coming here today and sharing your story with us and your business with us and how we can, again, continue to improve ourselves in this big, bad world of (laughs) everything that's coming at us, right? The white noise. And it's wonderful to hear. So again, thank you for coming. We've wanted to do this for quite some time. And for all of you listening, please get in touch with Sam. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Please write a review. It's really important that we continue to have those reviews going. And I'm so grateful that you take the time to listen in to what we have to share every single week. And I will see you next time on Stop Talking, Take Action. Take care. Thank you for listening to Mortgage Lending Mastery. Looking to streamline and launch your practice by accessing Jen's tools, courses, classes, presentations, and resources? Visit jenduplessis.com to learn about the features and benefits thousands of other professionals have experienced by enrolling in Jen's lifetime membership program. Isn't it about time you consider a coach to take your business to new heights? Contact Jen to start your application process today. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in next week.